You can go today to Philadelphia and stand on Fifth and Market Streets and really not notice much. Cars going by, a brown office building with dark windows probably from the 60s or 70s, a nice view of the mall on one corner, the American Museum of Jewish History on another corner, and in the distance, you'll see the top of Independence Hall. And you won't know that on the corner that you're standing on, a friendship between two signers of the Declaration ended. Two very good friends would begin a very icy period in their relationship. One that would eventually thaw after a decade. Today, we're going to talk about that break in the relationship and the thaw that almost happened, but wasn't to be. Crazy thing happens in the 1796 presidential election. This is the first openly contested presidential election in American history because the first two, 1788 and 1792, everyone knew that Washington was going to win the election. But 1796, you have Thomas Jefferson, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, the writer of it, and John Adams, the vice president and also a signer of the Declaration. The vote is so close that the top two vote-getters are Adams and Jefferson. Adams gets a few more electoral votes, thus he becomes president and Jefferson vice president. Yet politically, they weren't running on the same party as a president and vice president would today. They were on opposite tickets. Now, there wasn't really tickets, but there were people promoting the various candidates at the time. And the same people who were supporting Jefferson were not supporting Adams. They were opposed politically. There was a different set of policies that each wanted to pursue. Jefferson was part of the budding Republican movement. Adams was more of a Federalist. He didn't identify that way. But according to Jefferson, he was surrounded by Hamiltonians. But one thing's clear. The vote of the people having been cast, Thomas Jefferson doesn't look at the situation and says, well, I'm not going to take the vice presidency. James Madison writes to him and says, Jefferson, you've got to take the office. Oh, yes, I will, Jefferson writes back. It's no problem serving under Adams. He's always been my senior. And he doesn't want to show anyone that he thinks the office might be beneath him. He rushes to Philadelphia upon hearing he's elected to take office. It's a terrible winter, but he still makes it. Goes to Philadelphia, presides over the Senate as he's supposed to. He's there for the inauguration. He's sworn in and then watches as Adams is sworn in as president. And after the ceremony, they meet Jefferson and Adams, first in a hotel. That's a pretty intense meeting. In fact, Adams takes him in and shuts the door behind the two because he says he wished to have a free conversation. A lot of people are liking this. There's a Supreme Court justice who says, this looks good. They're dining together. It's good for the country. But according to the accounts, particularly Jefferson's accounts of that meeting, it doesn't 
seem like much is going to get done. See, the big problem at this time is that there's trouble with France. France is seizing ships in various ports, causing all kinds of trouble. And we need to send a diplomatic mission there. So Adams wishes to explore with Jefferson the idea that perhaps Jefferson would go. But the way that he phrases it, of course, is, well, I know you're vice president, and I don't even know if constitutionally it would be a good idea for the vice president to go to France. But I want you to know that I'm considering it, you know, that sort of thing. Jefferson's thinking, we know from his account, that he has no interest in going back to Europe. He lived there for quite a long time, was happy to be back in America. See, even as vice president in Philadelphia, he could still return to Virginia quite often. Well, there weren't that many duties of the office that would, that would keep him away that long. He goes to Europe. He's away from his farm again. There's different accounts about what happened in the meeting, but from Jefferson's point of view, he suggests that Adams had asked him, well, if you probably can't go because you're, you're vice president, but how about Madison? Would James Madison be willing to go? Well... There's two ways to look at this situation. I mean, one is that it's nice to invite people of the opposite political persuasion to help you with a major mission. The other is that you might be setting them up for blame if the mission doesn't work. And the other is that you might be removing these opponents from the political scene in the United States if they're busy abroad. So there's all these different interpretations of what could have been happening here. Of course, Adam's account... He was just exploring the best options for the country. Jefferson agrees that he'll ask his friend Madison if he would do it. That meeting's over. Of course, Jefferson talks to Madison, and Madison declines. He's not interested in going to Europe any more than Jefferson is. Also, in the meantime, Adams gets some negative feedback from his Federalist supporters about sending Jefferson over there. They just simply do not like Jefferson, and why don't you send some other people like Thomas uh, Pickering or someone like that? The second meeting between President Adams now and Vice President Jefferson is on Fifth and Market in Philadelphia. They have a brief conversation. Counts differ a little bit, but from Jefferson's point of view, he relays that Madison won't do it. And Adams says something to the effect, well, I've been rethinking that anyway. The impression Jefferson gets is that Adam has been consulting with his Federalist allies and wouldn't want to send him or Madison on the mission anyway, wants to take care of things with his party supporters alone. But whatever happened in that conversation on Fifth and Market, Jefferson says, Adams never consulted with me about matters of government again. On that, both sides agree. There was very little conversation after that. Now, all of this is kind of strange, that the moment that they would both reach elective offices in the United States that they helped to create, that it would be the moment that they would stop talking to each other, because they had been friends for so long. They were traveling abroad, and Adams was the minister to England, and Thomas Jefferson to France. Indeed, the families were intertwined. John Adams' wife, Abigail, and Thomas Jefferson, they exchanged letters. John Adams and Jefferson exchanged letters the whole period that they're living abroad. In fact, Thomas Jefferson and Abigail Adams exchanged more than 40 letters during the three years when she lived in London and he was in Paris. It was a lively correspondent. 
They talked about news from America, the European scene, arts, politics, the like. The same with the letters between Jefferson and Adams. When Adams called upon Jefferson for shopping favors, Jefferson was not hesitant to respond. Here's one from uh, Anna, Abigail Adams to Jefferson. Mrs. Adams presents her respectable compliments to Mr. Jefferson and asks him for the favor of him to permit Petit to purchase her 10 L's of double Florence of any fashionable color. This is a type of silk shoes. Now Jefferson asks in return, can she get him some kneaded tablecloths and dinner napkins, the kind that we used to import from England? In December 1786, Jefferson asks Abigail Adams for more than a shopping favor. Here's what he writes. My friends write me that they will send my little daughter to me by a vessel which sails in May for England, he notified his friend. I have taken the liberty to tell them that you would be so good as to take her under your wing till I can have notice to send for her. Six months later, Abigail writes to Jefferson that Mary Jefferson, called Polly in the letters, had arrived safely. By the time that Jefferson is able to get an escort to bring his daughter to Paris, his daughter had formed an enduring attachment to Abigail, saw in her a kind of daughterly affection. Between Abigail and John Adams, Jefferson is writing over 100 letters during the period that he's living abroad to them. And there's even a few letters right up to the point of the 1796 presidential election. And Jefferson writes in one, oh, the papers are saying that you and I are opponents, but you know that can't personally be the case and things like this. And when it's clear that Adams wins the election, he writes a letter, uh, Jefferson writes a letter to Adams. Oh, I never thought that anything else would happen. So the letters continue. I mean, they slow down a little bit when each of them is getting involved in government, but the letters don't stop until that time on Fifth and Market. And from that time, through the presidential election of 1800, when Thomas Jefferson would now defeat John Adams, first time a sitting president, the first time a sitting vice president beat a president. There's no letters. You know, and we live in a denarit now of kind of t texting. It's very popular. You know, if you're getting texts from somebody on a regular basis and all of a sudden it stops. You know, we, Some of us of uh, modern times, we'll notice something like that over the period of a day. Oh, I didn't submit a text today. This is nearly four years. Jefferson beats Adams in the presidential election. Then there is one letter between them. And here it is. To Thomas Jefferson from John Adams. Washington, February 20th, 1801. Sir, in order to save you the trouble and expense of purchasing horses and carriages, which will not be necessary, I have to inform you that I shall leave in the stables of the United States seven horses and two carriages with harness, the property of the United States. These may not be suitable for you, but they will certainly save you a considerable expense as they belong to the stud of the president's household. I have the honor to be with great respect, sir, your most obedient and humble servant, 
John Adams. So you get lots of letters, no letters, and then, oh, I left the horses for you in the stable. Good luck. And it's a decade before those two are going to talk again. We'll talk about that a little later. But I do want to talk about an event in between that occurs that almost, almost stop this little thaw in communication. And it starts with a tragic event, and that is that Mary Jefferson, Polly, that we talked about earlier visiting Thomas Jefferson, going to England and then visiting him in France, dies in 1804. This is her third child. Two of her children would die, and one son would live until 1881. The other two would die. And in giving birth to his third child, she's gravely injured and emotionally strained as well, and she doesn't survive. Jefferson's president at this time. And Abigail and John Adams are not talking to them. They're back in Massachusetts. They're not really involved in federal politics and United States politics at this time. The Republicans control the country. They control the Congress. They control the presidency. Abigail's really not talking to the Jeffersons, to Jefferson, and she's tortured because she so remembers Polly. And as much as she's mad at Jefferson for various political events that have gone on, including one that's going to get real personal and it'll come up soon, she can't get it out of her head that she's got to be a better person than this. This must be killing him. And so she writes to Jefferson out of the blue in 1804. Reasons for various kinds withheld my pen until the powerful feelings of my heart have burst through the restraint and called upon me to shed the tear of sorrow over the departed remains of your beloved and deserving daughter, the attachment which I formed for her when you committed her to my care upon her arrival in a foreign land has remained with me to this hour. The tender scene of her separation from me rose to my recollection when she clung around my neck and wet my bosom with her tears. That you may derive comfort and consolation in this day of your sorrow and affection is the sincere and ardent wish of her who once took pleasure in subscribing herself your friend. Now, it is a nice letter in many ways, but Jefferson notices something. You may have noticed it too. She says friend only in the past tense. Jefferson writes back. The affectionate sentiments which you have had the goodness to express in your letter of May 20th towards my dear departed daughter have awakened in me sensibilities natural to the occasion and recalled your kindnesses to her, which I shall ever remember with gratitude and friendship. I can assure you with truth, they had made an indelible impression on her mind, and that, to the last, on our meetings after long separations, whether I had learned lately of you and how you did, were among her earliest of her inquiries. He could have stopped there, and he doesn't. He had something else. In giving you this assurance, I perform a sacred duty for her, and at the same time I am thankful for the occasion furnished me of expressing my regret that circumstances should have arisen 
which have seemed to draw a line of separation between us. The friendship which you honored me has ever been valued and fully reciprocated. And although events have been passing which might be trying on some minds, I never believed yours to be that kind, nor felt that my own was. Okay. And that isn't so bad, maybe a little bit further than he needed to go with a letter such as Mrs. Adams wrote. But he writes more. I can say with truth that one act of Mr. Adams' life and one only ever gave me a moment's personal displeasure. I did consider his last appointments to office as personally unkind. They were from among my most ardent political enemies. This is referring to the midnight appointments, the, 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 the last day of the Adams presidency. He's still making all kinds of appointments, putting Federalists, Hamiltonian supporters into various offices. He continues, from whom no faithful cooperation could ever be expected and laid me under the embarrassment of acting through men whose views were to defeat mine or to encounter the odium of putting others in their places. It seemed but common justice to leave a successor free to act by instruments of his own choice. If my respect for him did not permit me to ascribe the whole blame to the influence of others, it left something for friendship to forgive. I forgave it cordially and returned to the same state of esteem and respect for him which had so long subsisted. Well, okay, now he's taking a letter, sorry about the loss of your daughter, and in replying, he's really getting into politics. This forced Abigail Adams to write another letter, and there would be several that would follow. But in the next letter, she says, your letter of June 13th came duly to hand, if it had contained no other sentiments and opinions than those which my letter of condolence could have excited and which are expressed in the first page of your reply, our correspondence would have terminated here. But you have been pleased to enter upon some subjects which call for a reply, and as you observe that you have wished for an opportunity to express your sentiments, I have given them every weight they claim. Then she quotes him. One act of Mr. Adams' life, and one only, you repeat, ever gave me a moment's personal displeasure. I did think his last appointments to office personally unkind. They were from among my most ardent political enemy. She quotes that. As this act, I am certain, was not intended to give any personal pain or offense, I think it a duty to explain it, as so far as he knew his views and designs. The Constitution empowers the president to fill up offices as they become vacant. It was in the exercise of this power that appointments were made and characters selected from whom Mr. Adams considered as men faithful to the Constitution and where he personally knew them, such as were capable of fulfilling their duty to their country. This was done by President Washington equally in the last days of his administration, so not an office remained vacant for his successor Philip on his coming to office. No offense was given by it, and no personal unkindness thought of it. But the different political opinions which might have so unhappily divided our country must have given rise to the idea that personal unkindness was intended. You will please recollect, sir, that at the time these appointments were made, there was not any certainty that the presidency would devolve upon you. She has two charges of her own. And one is that Jefferson hired the printer James Callender and paid him through the, and hired him to print foul things about John Adams. You know, because she's accusing him of freeing James Callender 
be, who was imprisoned under the Alien and Sedition Act. It was not until after circumstances concurred to place you in the light of a rewarder and encourager to a libeler that I withdrew the esteem I had long entertained for you. But more importantly, and most importantly to Abigail Adams, the thing that hurt the most, she feels that Jefferson removed from office John Quincy Adams, her son, because of what party he was, because he was John Adams' son, and she took personal offense to that. Jefferson then writes a response to that, and he says essentially, well, the reason that I freed James Callender, that act was unconstitutional. I had to free him. And he further says in, in regards to John Quincy Adams, her son, John Adams' son, that it was done in a group of appointments, that he wasn't aware of it, that it wasn't something that he ordered personally. She writes back, Your statement suspecting Calendar and your motives for liberating him where a different aspect is explained by you from the impression which they made not only upon my mind but upon the minds of all those whom I've ever heard speak on the subject. It lies with me not to decide upon its validity. That I presume the power to free Calendar devolved upon the supreme judges of the nation. But I have understood that the power which makes it a law is alone competent to the repeal. If a chief magistrate can by his will annul a law, where is the difference between a republican and a despotic government? The same restraint should be laid upon the assassin, whose stabs reputation in all civilized nations have ascended to. In no country has calamity, falsehood, and reviling stalked abroad more licentiously than in this. No political character has been more secure from its attack, no reputation so fair as to not be wounded by it, until truth and falsehood lie in one undistinguished heap. The Adams absolutely hated the type of political press that was existing in early America, where people were just printing slanders back and forth in the streets of Philadelphia, whatever they wanted, and Adams, as president, suffered greatly from it. He would not, by the way, only suffer from Republican printers. He would also suffer broadsides from some of the ultra-federalists, including Hamilton himself, who would write a real nasty, nasty brochure uh, against him right at the point at which he was running for re-election. You exculpate yourself from any intentional act of unkindness towards anyone in your explanation. Now, this is the matter regarding John Quincy Adams. I will freely state that which I referred to in my former letter and I could not avoid considering his personal resentment. Soon after my eldest son returned from Europe, he was appointed by the district judge to an office which no political concerns entered, personally known to you and possessing all the qualifications you yourself being judge, which you had designated for office. As soon as Congress gave the appointments to the president, you removed him. This looks so particularly pointed that some of your best friends in Boston at that time expressed their regret that you had done so. I must do him the justice to say that I have never heard an expression from him of censure or disrespect towards you in consequence of it. With pleasure, I say that he is not a blind follower of any party. I've written to you with the freedom and unreserve of former friendship to which I would gladly return could all causes be but mere difference of opinion be removed. I wish to lead a tranquil and retired life under the administration of government, to cool the raging fury of party animosity, to soften the spirit of resentment and desires of seeing my children and grandchildren heirs to that freedom and independent which you and your predecessor united your efforts to obtain. 
Well, they go back and forth with these letters, but nothing's resolved. But you do get the sense that these two families were friends once, and you'd really like to see them. They both kind of want to be friends again, but the politics and personal offenses within those politics seem to be too great. But you can kind of hear in the inkling of a hint that maybe there's a path to reproachment here. Then what happens is these letters going back and forth between Abigail Adams and Thomas Jefferson, John Adams discovers the correspondence. And so there's a note that's appended to the correspondence. He doesn't burn it. He doesn't throw it away, but he attaches a note of his own. November 19th, 1804. The whole of this correspondence was begun and conducted without my knowledge or suspicion. Last evening and this morning, at the desire of Mrs. Adams, I read the whole. I have no remarks to make upon it at this time and in this place. This is a longer story, and we'll have another episode on on what happens from here. But it's an unknown part of the story. Uh, A lot of people know the story of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and how they weren't friends during this period of political fighting and later had a reproachment. What's not often known is this little spark of something between Abigail Adams and Thomas Jefferson, engendered by the death of his daughter that might have started the two friends talking again but it wasn't to be thanks for listening Uh, it's been quite a while since I've returned to the signers Um, I really have a lot going on and my main podcast is my history can beat up your politics podcast where I discuss history and how it relates to the politics of today to provide some context www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com But, you know, I do love the subject of the signers and I think we need to know more about it. July 4th is coming up. I'm actually recording this on July 2nd, which many of you know is the actual day of the vote. I don't know when I'll get it up. Hopefully before the 4th. I want to thank you for listening.